nerds, librarians, all you ilk, welcome to the SS Librarianship Podcast. Again, we're back. Yay. At last. Um, <laughs> back with a fun one. Yeah. So this is a really um, cool episode. It's, uh, you know, with, with constant friend of the show, another, um, another Matthew Murray episode. But that's because he has some really awesome stuff to talk about. Um, it was a few months ago now, but he was able to go down to San Diego Comic Con. Not just to, you know, be a nerd at Comic Con, which sounds great in and of itself, mm-hmm. but also to do a bunch of library things. So he was at the Comics Co- a Comic Conference for Educators and Librarians, and he was actually uh, facilitating a whole bunch of workshops for people um, at the San Diego Public Library, around Comic Con, around comic stuff. Yeah, around like integrating comics into libraries, into education settings, and yeah, super, yeah. super interesting, really great work to be doing. Yeah, sounds super cool. So we... And- Melanie is and here. And Melanie, of course. Us. Yeah, Melanie be sort of like a, a guest host um, yeah. and also knows a ton about comics and mm-hmm. contributes to this being a really, really interesting conversation. So that's yeah. Melanie Cassidy, who, who by now is like a well-established new librarian at uh, the University of Guelph. Yeah. So congrats, Melanie. Absolutely. Okay, so um, along with that, of course, we've got your mind grapes. And since it's, you know, a Matthew episode, if you're into manga... This is all you, baby. We got lots of manga for you. Um, I own a Star Trek manga. Oh, I, I have a couple of uh, original Neon Genesis Evangelion Evangelion comics and some old Sailor Moon. You got it. Got it in one. Got it in one. All right. All right, guys, let's just get this one started. Um, I'm Ali Sullivan and history. Ugh, I mean, you happened already. Let it go. And I'm Sam Mills. And why am I persecuted? So, Allie? Yeah. What is on your mind, Grapes? Um, oh, man, I could I could talk about a couple things. Um, I think the one I'd like to talk about is, uh, so there's a, there's a YouTuber that I really, really like. And I may have talked about her before. Um, her name is uh, Caitlin Doty. And her YouTube channel is Ask a Mortician. Um, mm. And she's really great. Uh, like, you know, she answers questions that people send her about death and mortuary science and like what happens when you put a pacemaker in a um in a crematory you know uh, oven (laughs) things like that um and she's she's really awesome so i actually was able to recently get my hands on her first book so her memoir came out i think a couple of years ago now um and it talks about her first few years um working in the death industry um and is that actually what it's called oh it's called the funeral industry mostly um but, like, she takes a more kind of holistic view of it. Um, and she's a really interesting gal. So she started out by working um, as a crematory operator. Um, that was her first job in the industry. And then she ended up going back to mortuary school, um, becoming a licensed mortician. And now she um, she advocates for uh, sort of death positivity, but also things that disrupt the... Melanie's laughing at me What does already. that mean? Death positivity. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you death shame I, me. Well, yeah. I never thought that like there would be like, like sort of the right mortician licenses. Life. Yeah. But it makes sense. Oh, yeah. You have to go to school to be a mortician. You're, you're basically almost a doctor. Not quite, yeah. I guess. But well, like... Yeah. <laughs> it's just weird. like doctors make sure they're dead. Well, isn't that always... <laughs> like, like, 
wasn't there a running joke about that on like Scrubs or something? There's but there was somebody who like was kind of a shitty doctor, and so they ended up being the like. Well, the, he ended up being the the, the cor- like yeah the the coroner, but that's, that's different. That's different. There's okay. also like the the like beautician angle of like making them yeah. look attractive, mm, yeah. and that's else. that's kind of one of the things that she talks about is is part of death positivity is you know instead of trying to hide bodies and mask them in this kind of like faux life weirdness by using embalming practices and stuff like that she um advocates for more natural things like you know you you bodies actually decompose much more slowly than we think um you know it's absolutely legal and possible for you to have a funeral for your grandmother in your own home Nobody has to come and take the body away from you. Nobody has to do this kind of stuff. So, like the last episode of Six Feet Under. Well, I didn't get that far. Okay, oh I'm not going to it then. <laughs> anyway, so she's uh, she's a really interesting uh, gal, and she, so she kind of talks about it. And of course, the um, you know a lot of the traditional funeral industry hates her, um, not only because she's a woman speaking on the internet, because how dare she, but also um, <laughs> because she is kind of advocating for these more natural practices, um, and you know saying that yeah, taking away the money and and saying that you know it's like you, you know you 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 can do things, you don't have to use these kind of mediated and extraordinarily expensive services you know there's no real <clears throat> reason why a body needs to be embalmed unless the the person wanted their body to be embalmed um you know so it's it's a really really interesting kind of perspective that she has on things and um she's really shaking it up so she um and some friends of hers run a funeral home in la called the co-op funeral home and it's kind of um designed to uh, the book doesn't go this far. I, I know the rest of this from, you know, reading her her blog and, and things like that. She's also a founding member of this um, online society called the Order of the Good Death, where they do a lot of, you know, death advocacy and things like that. Wait, wait a second. What is death advocacy? Is it like about this, like, you don't dying have to with... be all pretty and everything? No, thing, I think or is it's, it like probably dying with dignity? The dying with dignity stuff. Well, it's, it's, it's dying with dignity stuff, okay. but it's also, um, well, I mean, it's not necessarily attached to sort of like doctor-assisted suicide. It's, it's death advocacy is like saying that you know death is something that's going to happen to us all and the more we kind oh, of accept so like that see for like the concept, the concept of, of death. death yeah interesting yeah so she's um her first book is really really interesting and and so like i said this funeral home kind of um what the the idea behind it was is to provide people with um the information if they do want to have a more kind of natural funeral natural natural burial um, these kinds of things, kind of giving them the information that they need, but also, you know, providing support and space. But she said what they've been finding, which is really lovely, is that a lot of people, once you give them the information, they're willing to use it. You know, like, so they hmm. said, we find we're actually doing a lot fewer funerals in our space than we thought we would because we're asking people what do they want and they want to do it in the comfort of their home so it's really she's a really really interesting um figure just both from her youtube channel and her her first book is really interesting um it's called smoke gets in your eyes hmm. and uh yeah i checked it out from the library so it was really it's like the last really good. profession you would expect to be in the public eye like that it's so interesting which is why i think people are so upset about her <laughs> i mean she really does she get about it yeah you know what you know what it is they're all resting on their laurels because what's a business that's never gonna not be a viable business yeah dealing with death yeah. right so Until, like you know the robots take over yeah i have a question mm-hmm. yeah these ideas are new to me and so they're unsettling 
Yes. Were they unsettling for you before you started reading about them? Mm. Not entirely, um, because I was so familiar with her work sort of through her YouTube channel. Um, but starting to watch her YouTube was definitely got some, some eye-opening stuff. Um, but I was also a pretty morbid kid. Um, <laughs> so uh, so that's always, you know, dealing with that stuff or thinking about that kind of stuff is always... She says in the past tense while wearing a skull <laughs> wrapper on her Fitbit. I just love the irony of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's supposed to keep me healthy, but it's got skulls all over it. You, you, you have like your skull has to be healthy too. I guess, yeah. But, <laughs> but like, yeah. So like, I, I, I guess I, I, I think maybe did you did you study literature in school? Not really. No, they just didn't cover that at all. Just no books. Just no books. Um, no, but I meant like, like sort of in depth, like close readings and weird yeah, old poems. Yeah, I, I took a few English courses. Yeah, so so I mean that's always something that that really fascinated me about literature too. Is is you know a lot of contemplation about death and these kinds of things. So yeah, they are ideas that are extremely unsettling, and she totally acknowledges that, but um, asks us to kind of lean into it instead of leaning away from it um because it's you know things that we should think about and and you know if we if we are cognizant of what we want to happen when we die it takes a lot of the stress off of the people who who remain so you know things like that it sounds like a youtube channel emily dickinson would love i loved him see i love the crap at emily dickinson <laughs> same yeah so so yeah like were the ideas a little unsettling yeah but i, I quickly kind of fell into thinking about it more and that's one of the big things that i really like about her is that she she you know she is an advocate for providing people with um information and alternatives and um you know doing what they want you know so she's not you know advocating that you know everybody should do death this way um she's saying that we should examine our preconceptions um we should you know really think about um what sort of society has what our modern society because the funeral industry mm. is an extremely new industry when you actually look in like the grand scheme of human history um like you know death was always dealt with at home before like less than 100 years ago hmm. so she uh, she just basically asks us to think about the structures that have created the way we think about death and 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 examine how we feel and you know you could you could think like no i really want to be embalmed like i don't want my family to see me that way and she would be like that's great that's a decision that you've made knowing all the information so yeah that's something i really like about her is she's not necessarily about like you know hippy dippy free love you have to do it this way but, uh, yeah options and questioning so i've brought this conversation down to start but i guess there's nowhere to go but up no, so have you decided cool. on your funeral yet yeah Tell us, yeah. please. <laughs> I definitely don't want to be embalmed. Yeah. I know that for sure. Um, so, I, quick turnaround. Yeah. Uh, I definitely want to be cremated um, because I don't like being underground. Um, Me too. I know that about myself. I really hate it. Uh, you know, I grew up in a geology family, so I have been underground many times as a child, and I really don't like it. <laughs> it's so, like you lived in, like, mole caves. <laughs> <laughs> I was a mole girl. <laughs> I have never seen the light. <laughs> um, yeah, but like, so th those are things that I've thought about. I don't know if I want something done with my ashes or if I want them to be like 
put on a space. show. Oh, that would be cool. Yeah. Cost a lot of so, money. Though. I don't like, yeah. I don't it was, like thinking yeah, about Yeah, it was $12,000. $19.95, it's probably a lot more now. That's probably less, actually. Well, it's you don't easier. have to. Can you just live forever? Okay. Okay. For you, Mel, I will live forever. Just Thanks, upload man. your brain to the internet. <laughs> yeah. Was that good enough? I mean, that's not really you. <laughs> Oh man, are we going to have that like cyborg and AI discussion now? Perhaps we should abandon this before we go on. I think that's the entire episode. Someone's going to mention transcendence and then it's all going to be. Matthew, bring us back to life. (laughs) Wake me up! I can't wake up! That was so good. And Matthew has left. (laughs) I'm just kidding. He did it. Dust cloud. Sure. So um, I'll talk about. Two different things. What? I Matthew know. Gets two this, things? Is, this is terrible. We never well, told you you couldn't have two things. Oh. <laughs> well, one I just want to mention um, briefly is that I uh, finished replaying Portal 2 recently. Cool. And I still haven't finished Portal 1 because I'm a terrible video game player. Did, are, as in, you're really bad at playing the games or you're bad at like taking the time to finish them? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I think, I think that Portal and Portal Two is really interesting because I think it's important to the world of science fiction beyond games mm-hmm. and like the way that stories are told beyond just video games. And I think that there's not that many that can really that that can really be said for the AI thing was kind of a good transition into this. Yeah, it yeah. was. Yeah, really. <laughs> um, so I really enjoy the Portal series. Uh, I've played. Like, I've played both of them. I would love there to be another one that would come out or just something similar to it. What uh, is it about the storytelling that really, like, that you see as unique? I think it's really, it's, like, the humor is used really well. Uh, I always like robots. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or hate robots, as the case may be. Uh, I think it's really interesting to to tell this story with such a small cast of characters as well yeah. is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but also to have so much backstory that's revealed in different ways. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the most fascinating parts of that first game are just when you're going through those weird little hidey holes yeah. with like stuff written on the wall mm-hmm. and weird old cans. And, and so there's beans. stuff that you can just miss entirely. Mm. Um, but that, that can help you experience more of the plot. But if you don't see it, you're still hopefully having an enjoyable experience. I feel like there might at least be one or two people listening to this who have no idea what Portal is. Do you want to give us like the, sure. the like thirty second what Portal is about? So it's a video game. Doesn't have to be thirty seconds. <laughs> where uh, you have a portal gun, which is a gun that you can fire uh, both ends of a teleportation portal. Um, so you like walk through one and you come out the other. Hmm. And so it's a puzzle game. It's a first person puzzle game where you're walking around these this abandoned scientific complex at some point in the future and there's a an evil artificial intelligence that's trying to kill you (laughs) with puzzles yes i heard there was cake no maybe (laughs) there is in the portal board game yes oh my god they made a board game out of there's also actually a legit board game so funny yeah Uh, have any of you guys gone to the musical that's no, no it's a portal musical. It's like unofficial, <laughs> but like people in Vancouver have done it, like put it off a couple times. So. That's awesome. That's funny. I have no idea what it's like. <laughs> so two introduces like a different narrator, right? Like it's not Glados. It's no Glados is still. Oh, okay. There's but a, isn't there a thing with like the dude who ran the facility yeah. also? Wheatley. 
Uh, um, that's that's stuff that's like backstory stuff. Oh, okay. yeah. That you find out, but they're they're not. Like, there's still only one human actually in the, okay. the game. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah. So you are you do get another sort of AI helper companion guy who's voiced by Stephen Merchant. <laughs> um, so it's amazing. Um, yeah, but uh, one of the things I really like about Portal there's there's two things I love about Portal. The first is that it was kind of a like a like a write-off game, right? It just came in the orange box. Yeah. Nobody was expecting it to do... Like, it, it was almost like an experiment. Yep. You know, what they were really crediting it for was to test out this new physics engine, mm-hmm. right? In a video game. Mm-hmm. And um, it just exploded. Like, everybody loved it so much. Nobody expected it to be, like, the breakaway hit of of the orange box. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and the second thing I really love about it is the fact that so much mythology and stuff has been sort of created around it because I think that there was this sort of there it was sort of a one-off game mm-hmm. and everybody loved it so much that that a lot of people just kind of took ownership of it you know mm-hmm. like and you know there's lots of you know art and you can buy a companion cube and like you know like there, there's a huge like yeah. I like I guess I like the fandom around Portal mm-hmm. is what I'm saying, mm-hmm. like as as a cute little game that was supposed to go nowhere, um for it to have gained that much significance because they were really well designed puzzles, yeah it's a great great game. It, it's it's kind of interesting when you go into the so the puzzles are such as like you go in through one door into a room or a series of chambers and then you have to get out the other side mm-hmm. yeah. and there's like various things that you have to do and then so many times you walk in and you're like I have no idea how to do this and then you walk around for a couple of minutes and then you're like oh wait I know what to do now you're yeah. thinking with portals yeah, yeah. Uh, so this it's, it's pretty clever the movie cube yeah I guess kind of the environments are similar mm-hmm. yeah but you have this amazing thing and you also more than that have like the laws of physics yep. at your disposal yeah. right because a lot of the time what you'll do is use your own momentum mm-hmm. right you jump into something and then fall out of it yep. yeah yeah so uh, it's did you play it when it first came out matthew uh no mm. uh like i played portal i can't like a couple of years after it first came out and i think portal 2 a couple of years after it came out as well so mm-hmm. i can't remember exactly when they came out now but yeah they're they're good games they're fun portal's great maybe yep. one day i'll do more <laughs> uh so the other thing i want to talk about is uh a manga series called Eden It's an Endless World by Hiroki Endo. Hmm. And this is a sort of sci-fi, cyberpunk, futuristic uh, manga that I recently managed to pick up some of the volumes I was missing Hmm. for really cheap, which was really exciting to me. Uh, And so I decided a couple days ago to read through it all from the beginning and read the volumes I hadn't read. And I now just finished volume 11... I started wow. on like Thursday, so it's been like <laughs> plowing through these. It's yeah, um, so it's a kind of a schizophrenic series in some ways. In that it starts off with um, the first like hundred pages are like these two teenagers who are like a male and a female, and um, an older scientist guy who are in this living on this island, and it seems as though everybody on Earth has died from a terrible disease. Uh oh. Um, and the the scientist is is slowly dying from this as well. Then it turns out everyone hadn't died, and so <laughs> then we like time jump twenty years into the future, and then it starts becoming like this comic about, uh, like weird political guerrilla fighters, uh, trying to escape from this one area of South America, and there's just like 
two volumes of like robot fighting and ridiculousness <laughs> and I love it. And then and then like we get to they escape and like I'm spoiling some stuff. Is it here. the same characters from the beginning? It, so it's it's the chill the child of one of the characters from the oh, beginning. Okay. Um, so it's really, it's like he had no idea what he was doing when he started the comic. Mm. And it was like, oh no, I need to do something else. Um, <laughs> they're still paying you to do this. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and so then it goes to like, they're in uh, Peru, I think. And it becomes this like weird, like crime political thing with like drug dealers and rival gangs. And you're just like, is this the same comic I was reading with robots? Like, um, so there's a lot of really strange stuff and weird um thing you start reading things you're like is this a flashback or not and then like there's cyborgs and stuff it is i kind of uh, i jokingly describe it it's a, a seinen comic um which is like men's comic in, oh, okay. in, and so it's like it's men comic for men like <laughs> it's, it's, it's got like all this violence there's all these sex scenes um and it's like but there's not actually that much of this stuff released in english Mm-hmm. Um, like so much of the manga that's released in English is uh like shonen and shoujo, so like like teenage boy and teenage girl comics. Okay, yeah. Um, and so the stuff that is is more not just like more violent, but like more political and mm-hmm. talks about things like that is, is a lot really appealing to me. And talk so the, a lot of the political stuff is really interesting in this one. Um, I think it is not for everybody. <laughs> uh, it sounds like the manga equivalent of it's like for men. A good Nicolas Cage movie. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of what it is. It's like it's a, <laughs> like, it's a good action film that can maybe might make you think about some stuff. Matthew, what percent of the comics that you read are manga? Not very many, to be honest. I used to read a lot more, um, and I decided recently that I wanted to to read more again. Um, one of the, the things I'll talk about later is I um, I went to a, a best and worst manga panel at San Diego Comic Con, mm. and so um, it was like uh, people in the comic book industry and librarians and reviewers and all these people talking about what they thought the best and worst manga from the last year were. And one of the ones that was suggested uh, was the cycling manga um, called Yoamushi Pedal. I can't remember exactly what it's called. Mm-hmm. And I was pumped because I've been waiting for them to translate a cycling manga for years. Because I knew they existed. Because there's like manga for everything. Is it just like adventures on bikes? It's So it's like, it's a shonen comic. So it's like, by high school kids and like basically, you know, one of them wants to become the best cyclist ever. <laughs> okay. That's like that's what every every he shonen comic is. I want to be the best ninja, pirate, soccer player, whatever it is. <laughs> the best ever. Capture of small helpless animals. Exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. all I, I <laughs> want to be the go. best. <laughs> uh and so this one is there's the um the the teenage character who like knows he's really good at cycling and then there's the other teenage character who doesn't realize he's actually good at cycling but has joined the site who's going to join the cycling team to like make friends personal um, growth yeah it's it's and it's it's like kind of silly but it's also just like and it's like manga is so slow sometimes <laughs> and so like you will have these things and it's just like this is 200 pages of one fight scene oh or like God. this is 80 pages of one bicycle race and it's because of the way that they're released in Japan, like in these huge anthologies with like 20 pages a week of each series coming out. Right. It gives you, it, it's at a much different feeling than reading comics produced in Europe or in, or in North America. It's like reading a Charles Dickens novel and wondering why the hell he's using so many words. And it's yep. because he was paid by the word yep. and it came out two pages at a time. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, 
and like cliffhangers and, and all this stuff. And so it's a, it's a different storytelling method and it's one that's really um, interesting to see. And it's kind of hard for anything not produced in that format to really reproduce hmm. because you're not going to be nothing produced in, in North America is going to be putting out 20 pages a week, mm-hmm. you know? And even if you are like, I can't even imagine anyone doing this. Um, like, Maybe some web comics. I was just going to say maybe. Like, but even I, though. Like, but that's, like, that's still even. a lot of pages for But the problem comic. is, like, how are you, as a web comic, very few web comics are going to release 20 pages as a chunk. Yeah. yeah. You know? There's a couple that do it, but most of them are, like, one page a day or whatever, yeah. or one page however often. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. And so the the ways that manga are are told are I think really interesting the differences between it and other types of comics so after reading that one and deciding to go in with Eden and some other stuff I picked up recently I'm like I want to read more again um, and so I've been looking for other stuff that I wanted to read as well um, do any of you have much experience with manga or I read manga sometimes yeah I yeah like I have some high school friends who are really really into it but they they just, I think, handed me the wrong ones at the wrong time. And I was like, this is terrible. And I never read any more manga after that. Mm. Except that um, somebody bought me, one of those high school friends actually bought me a Star Trek manga yeah. a few years ago for my birthday. And I really enjoyed that. But no, very little experience. One of the manga that I read recently was Wandering Sun, which is kind of, well, mm-hmm. not a lot of people know that one. But um, what was really, really good about it is that there was sort of a legend included in every volume yep. that explained a lot of the cultural references mm-hmm. for people who are not from Japan and don't yeah. really understand what people are talking about necessarily. And that made it a lot easier to follow. One of my favorite manga series is Kurosagi Corpse Delivery Service, which kind of ties back into what Ali was talking about. <laughs> yeah. And so but at the end of it the there's a the editor has like several pages where they explain all of the like weird Japanese cultural references that would go completely over everybody's head from like things like the title of this chapter is like a rock song from the 60s from japan <laughs> and i'm just like i would just never ever have that and like all these other things but like architecture and cultural things from japan and it, it like it helps give it so much context that it's really useful sometimes and it can be when you're reading things from other cultures it can you can just totally miss things or totally misunderstand things mm-hmm. because you just don't have the the experience with that yeah that's that's nice that those i mean i don't know i'm of two minds about that it's kind of crappy i guess that they feel they have to but on the other hand they know they're reaching a wider market so they want to accommodate that market it's kind of it, great one of the things that eden doesn't do that which is kind of hmm. disappointing at times but part of that is because it's not set in japan it's oh. set in mostly in south america and other countries and it's, and it's also in the future yeah and in the future um but it is really interesting to see a manga that is that international in scope hmm. and that has a lot of like um, South American characters and like different and the creator has gone to some amount of effort to try and um, so the diversity of different people that live in South America, which I thought was really interesting, too, because race is not always something that's dealt with that well in Japanese comics. Uh, you know, we were just talking about this when we were watching Summer Wars last week because I don't watch very much anime, mm. and it always seems to me like it's set in some kind of post-racial future <laughs> where, like, everybody is every race at once because there's, like, a little kid that looks Japanese and his sister is, like, a red-headed Irish-looking mm-hmm. girl. and like, But it's just the way they draw people because yep. they're yeah. not thinking about race at all. 
It, or at least they don't think about it the same way. Hmm. I don't know. I, if we could have someone on who's like an anime scholar or something who could explain <laughs> this to totally. us. So, if you know one, let yeah. us know. It always kind of like, when, when I read some manga or when I watch some anime that are set in like a fantasy world or a, like science fiction future or whatever, it is kind of interesting to think that like, I am viewing the characters differently than how the Japanese readers and creators are mm-hmm. because mm. I'm projecting myself onto them and they're projecting themselves onto them. Yeah. Um, and so there are certain fantasy ones I've read where I'm just like, oh, no, wait, these are probably, these people all probably look Japanese, <laughs> <laughs> like to the cre- original creators, but yeah. in my mind, that's not how I'm seeing them. They look and like this- you because you're the one reading yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Right? And, and because they look enough like me mm-hmm. because I'm, um, like I'm not dark skinned or anything like that. So yeah, I, yeah, I can... that's true. So yeah, that even makes it even more important to sort mm-hmm. of if you're going to set it in South America. Mm-hmm. Huh, that's really interesting. Awesome. Yep. So what have you been up to, Melanie? Um, Matthew just inspired me about another thing that I wanted to talk about, <laughs> <laughs> which is Terrace House. Do you guys know Terrace House? No. Oh my god, Matthew, have you ever heard of Terrace House? A person? No, okay. <laughs> Listen, Terrace House is a Japanese reality TV show okay. that has been oh, on I for several years. This. Yeah, I think yeah, I did. Yeah. It's been on for yeah. several years, but um, Netflix picked up the last season, like paid for the last season. So now there's a season on Netflix, and I watched that season. And I really want to watch other seasons because I liked it so much, but they're really hard to find with any English subtitles yeah. or anything. Um, so it's sort of like the real world. Um, but also there's this weird like dating element to it. So there's <laughs> three guys, three young guys and three young girls who live in a really fancy house together and they all go on dates with each other and it's all very chaste. Everything is very like innocent and sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really... when the cameras are on and oh, anyway. this is the best part. every like 15 minutes you cut away from the house into a studio where there are like six people watching the show. Oh, that's that's very Japanese. Yep. Yeah. Do, yeah, and they like they stop watching it and talk about what they've seen. So it's kind of <laughs> like you have people to watch it with, even if you're watching it by yourself. <laughs> and it's so entertaining. I love it so much, and it's so fascinating to watch like all of the cultural practices and mm-hmm. stuff. Um, like there's um there's a character who come or character there's a guy who comes into the house like partway through the season and he was born in japan and he's half japanese and half iranian and he grew up in hawaii and so he comes back to japan to join terrace house and it's so interesting when he joins because he's got all of the western like cultural Mm -hmm. habits Mm -hmm. so like he walks into the living room with his shoes on (gasps) Yeah, <laughs> he sticks his hand out to shake hello instead oh. of like just a little. Bow Honestly, or I think people that do that are monsters too. Yeah. Like well, the shoes inside, resp- like, no. like everybody responds really well, right? Because I guess they kind of expect this from him because there are even characters who I think I think they even refer to him as like a half breed at one point, <laughs> which is like, oh, there's that. There's that racism racism thing happening. And oh my God, there's this great moment. I'm going to spoil this for you. There's this fantastic (laughs) moment where this guy, the, the like Japanese Iranian guy goes on a date with one of the Japanese girls and they're walking and he just takes her hand and holds her hand. And then you cut back to the studio with all the people and they're like, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) But, but that's like the (laughs) anti-bachelor. It's like holding hands is a huge 
deal, apparently. But at the same time, that's the sort of thing that you expect from like the panel, like the panelists in Japanese shows. It's like they yeah. have to give yeah. like completely absurd reactions to yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's it's just so funny and it's so entertaining to watch. And I guess it got really, really popular because they were just gonna do like. I don't know, like 18 episodes or something, which was a really short season for Terrace House, I gather. But it was so popular that by the time you get to the end of the 18 episodes, it's like, guess what? There's more, but it's not available yet. Oh. So I'm like, oh, damn you, Terrace House. <laughs> I like it so much. <laughs> they have fun. like adult conversations about how they feel about each other and anti-bachelor but they don't have any of the adult fun though no they don't they're like eventually (laughs) you get to a very chaste kiss between like a couple of people and they talk about how they had sex oh really yeah not like in any sort of lascivious way it's just like well yeah of course we've had sex but they never that, show that anything like that. That probably is like totally scandalous in Japan. I don't probably, know. Probably, probably. One of the panel guys is like a thirteen-year-old boy. What the fuck? <laughs> That's amazing. And he wears like little bow ties. And he's so cute and adorable. And there's like another older guy who is constantly trying to get him, get the little guy on his side. And they're probably so all good. Japanese celebrities. So oh, yeah. Well, like almost certainly, I'd say yeah, they're all Japanese celebrities. Okay. That's usually what they do. Huh. I think it's mostly the same panelists in every season. Yep. Well, but, yeah. They're probably famous somehow. Well, it's it's like, you oh, know, so it's like Simon a child Cowell actor and people talking Lady about sex Gaga being deal. on the X-Factors. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, like, uh, yeah, the Japanese panelists are usually... It is really interesting, though, to look at, like, that being made for Netflix. And mm-hmm. there's more and more, like, those streaming services are doing more and more, like, um, inter-country collaborations and releasing things yeah like there's a weird k-drama show yep that on... amazon is doing there's, they're no doing... there's one on oh. netflix now too it's oh. like or like yeah and then there's i watched a couple of the korean comedies mm-hmm. oh i, I watched like, a lot these are of insane. Like, but but like Japanese not just and korean stuff on netflix not yeah. just that they're there but that they're actually now being, being produced by, by netflix yeah. and Am- yeah. amazon apparently Which just announced maybe... that they're making a new dra- korean drama show well huh. it's 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 weird it's it's not even like so the the netflix korean drama thing it's like a white girl who's obsessed with korean drama <laughs> oh i've seen that I've seen yeah. the whole thing. It's so great. Yeah, it's really cool. So it's like Korean, but it's also American. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. it's like half English, half Korean. and Yeah, so it's kind of meant to be played in both countries. But I'm just yeah. thinking about all of this in the context of like Netflix's stupid fucking like Regions? country border oh region God. copyright issues. I don't want to smack my head against my microphone. The Amazon Prime stuff pisses me off so much because there's uh, no yeah. way to watch that stuff in Canada. Yeah, no. It's if just you, like my choice is the man in the high castle, or you nothing. have to do it illegally. Or like yeah. go and spy on them when they're filming it down the street. <laughs> <laughs> go find them at UBC where they put up Nazi banners with no warning to anyone. Oh, man. <laughs> we have gone wildly off topic. Did you Halloween have another thing that you wanted ago. to talk about? Oh, yeah. Um, just briefly, I can tell you that also I have been listening to a super amazing podcast called The Babysitter's Club Club, <laughs> which is so great. I love it. It's these two guys who are in their 30s, Jack. <laughs> and tanner and they read um old copies of the babysitter's club and then every episode they talk about the issue and they're very funny they have fantastic chemistry i would listen to them talk about anything um but you get to listen to them talk about i get to and it's so great like okay so jack i've said this um to ali your husband john before Mm. jack reminds me of 
John. Oh, okay. <laughs> because he's got a very, like, um, he looks at the books and he gets very, like, critical and analyzes them. Oh, sure. And he, like, brings yeah. up some of the higher philosophy and he's dropping, like, philosophers' names and sure, stuff. Sure, sure, sure. And then Tanner is just like, whatever, man, you talk. I'm going to get a beer. You go ahead. <laughs> and he gets distracted by, like, a cat that walks into the room. And... Well, see, but then John would be both of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Someone has put John in that, like, transporter accident from, like, the enemy within. Oh, Kill gosh. us both, Spock. But it's so great. They have, um, so they have all these segments. They've got, um, so they always start it with Jack describes what happened in the book in one sentence. And it's always like really academic and flowery and philosophical. And then Tanner gets 60 seconds to give the actual plot of the book. (laughs) And he almost consistently fails at it. He gets like stuck trying to remember somebody's name and he runs out of time. This does sound adorable. Um, They have a segment called Tearful Moment where they Mm -hmm. pick out what part of the book made them cry, which Uh is super sweet. They have Burn of the Week where they find like all the like sick burns in the the book and like talk about them. They come up with this theory. Yeah, Mallory, well, your parents are divorced. (gasps) (laughs) That's rough, man. Isn't just being Mallory enough of an insult, though? A lot of people love Mallory, you guys. A lot of people love her. I have no memory of, like, I know I read some of them. You don't have to remember everything that happened. It helps if you remember who the characters are Mm -hmm. for when they talk about it. But like Mallory's the ginger one that nobody likes, right? A lot of people like Mallory. No, nobody in the books likes. Yeah. Oh, well, I in don't In the know. third grade, I made this weird leap from, like, Babysitter's Club to adult Star Trek novels, and I just, like, oh. never went back. Isn't there well, some, like, crossover fan fiction there? There's gotta be. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I think John would be interested in if he listened to the Babysitter's Club Club is when they start to talk about doll theory. Because okay. there's a lot of, like, stuff happening in these books about dolls and, like, people controlling dolls and using mm. dolls in like really untoward ways that I'm sure Anna like Martin did not do on ways? purpose. Yes. There's but magic there's this whole school? like thread. And so. also Jack often oh you need to they're listen to them talk you. about no. I, I think they're just no. making this up. Also <laughs> you can google this. Anna Martin also wrote another series about dolls. Okay. Keep telling us about it. So, um, they also have a theory that all of the people in Stony Brook, Connecticut, are actually bees. Sure. So sometimes they sometimes they call themselves the Babysitters Club Club. Cool. And they refer to their fans as like baby boys and baby girls, which is really cute. The Baby Nation. We're in the Baby Nation. Okay. Such a fun show. You need to listen to it. We need to abandon this thread. This went off. The rails. Didn't worst bestsellers do an episode about the Babysitters Club books recently? Um, I don't know, maybe. I thought they did it like a, a little while ago. Cut this out if they didn't, I guess. <laughs> yeah, because we we go into that detail with, with editing. Um, well, I there is my one podcast. featured book on the Scholastic page about Anne M. Martin, and it is A Dog's Life: The Autobiography of a Stray. How does a dog read an autobiography? I read. I recently um. finished reading uh, Raina Telgemeier's adaptations of the babysitters clubs books he did four of them in com as in comic form how closely adapted are they well i've never read the originals well but they're good don't you think you should now no oh. well so Anne's or uh, sorry sam's got the the text up here of the of the dog's autobiography and i just want to read a selection for you <laughs> so that's just an opening <laughs> Thank you for that. That will be fun when I edit the episode later. I put the mic away from my face. <laughs> Icons of horror and the supernatural. What the fuck? 
Okay. Also, I have a librarian and podcast at the same time. It's not working. The point is, it's a really fun podcast. That's all. Really <laughs> it does sound really fun. It does sound good. It's and a also, little questionable in its honesty about the content of the babysitter. You gotta listen novels. to it. You gotta listen to it. That, they're doing. They're doing like deep reading. Doing God's work. That's what um, but also remember how like a couple of years ago I came on your podcast and talked about. Go Bayside, which yes. yes, this is like that. Yeah, I tried to listen to Go Bayside. Oh, I just—it's not that it was a bad podcast. It's—it's it's just that Saved by the Bell isn't really a, that much of a frame of reference for me. I think back then, like for that podcast, you should know more about Saved by the Bell. Yeah, to li- to enjoy that podcast. Like I remember watching some reruns of it when I was really little, but like it—it it wasn't a part of my formative years. I remember Saved by the Bell better than I remember the Babysitters Club. But for yeah. the Babysitters Club Club, you don't need as much knowledge of the of the source material because you get you know summaries of the philosophical and plot points yeah it's really just fun to listen to them talk i don't know man the buzzfeed list entitled 12 facts about the babysitters club that will blow your mind does not include any supernatural content and i feel like it would if this was i feel like those people are not as smart as jack it's quite possible it's quite possible all right sam take us home (laughs) i also have a podcast to talk about um and i feel like we've actually never talked about this one on the show we have talked about many um parts of the McElroy family of products but we have not <laughs> sure yet we've talked, talked about, about I don't think zone. we've talked about the adventure zone if, even sure. if we haven't it, even if we have it's worth talking about again because lately it has been incredible so the adventure zone if I am right and we haven't talked about it before or if you just don't know what it is is a podcast that's put out every second week um, on the Maximum Fun Network and it is a D&D podcast which, of which there are many but um, this by far I think is the best one and it's the three brothers from My Brother, My Brother, and Me, Justin, Travis, and Griffin McElroy, and their dad playing D&D 5 uh, in a campaign that Griffin, the youngest, is running for the other three who are his main characters. And it is incredible. It's such great storytelling and great improvisation. All four of them have some, like, theater and performance training, and they're excellent improvisers on just the other comedy shows that they do. Um, whatever. <laughs> Ali's showing me that we have talked about it on the show before, but <laughs> it's worth mentioning again because lately uh, Griffin has really been taking his storytelling game to like a totally new level. Um, so he started to write music for the show, and Actually, at first, yeah, it's really good. The music's yeah. super good. And at first, like he was doing that a little bit. There were like a couple little interstitial, like electronic things that he had cobbled together in GarageBand and whatever. But he's starting to actually create these like actual compositions that enhance the story and create ambiance or are even sort of clues within the story for the other three players as they're going through whatever puzzle or adventure it is uh and yeah he started to release them on soundcloud our own dm yeah john (laughs) John has started to use some of this music in his game and i think that's part of the point of griffin putting this out there yeah but it's really become um this he started with like a boxed campaign uh, in their very first few episodes. And now he's expanded it into this whole world that he's created where there's this Bureau of Balance organization working behind the scenes. And they've, they've hired the three characters that his family plays um, to retrieve these grand relics that if they fall into the wrong hands will cause the destruction of the universe. And there's started to be recurring characters that they work with at the Bureau um, or that just pop in and out because their fan favorites and Griffin finds a way to work them back in. He does voices for a lot of them. Uh, the three, um, Justin and Clint and Travis, also 
have character voices. Although Justin is a lot better at staying in character <laughs> than the other two are. Uh, but the last couple of arcs, including the arc that they're in the middle of right now, have just been just this really meaty, fascinating, um, poignant, but very sweet and innocent in a way kind of storytelling that he's doing um, in this improvisational format. So they just finished an arc called The Crystal Kingdom. Um, and it was really actually quite science fiction-y. There was this um, NPC, Lucas, who was working for the Bureau of Balance, developing all kinds of technology for them. And it turns out he was doing this through like very untoward means and had accidentally created this crystal substance that was eating the world and they had to go and deal with that. But I think John and Jonathan, who have been goading me to catch up, were totally right that the current arc is the best one by far. Um, and the story, the way he's using the format of D&D &D mm. to tell this story is just amazing. So the current arc is called The Eleventh Hour. I think I'm two or three episodes behind, but it's still not done. And it's a time travel story, so which I always have a weakness for. But um, so the relic they're after this time is the the chalice of I don't know if it's the chalice of time or what, but it's this chalice that allows you to control time. And they haven't found it yet, but what they have found is a town uh, in a bubble. And once they find their way into the bubble, it's about eleven o'clock in the morning. They wander around the town. They meet some NPCs. They see a bank robbery happening. Then there's an earthquake. Then there's a little more of an earthquake. Then the entire town perishes in fire and they all die. And they end up in a white space. And the music Griffin uses for this sort of all of a sudden they're dead is just amazing. They end up in a white space and there's an old woman and she says, well, you're going to have to do much better than that. And then they end up at the town and it's 11 a.m. again. And Ground so he's day. using, exactly. So he's using the format of D&D &D to, he's, um, so there's this thing when you're running D&D &D where you, you have a tendency to, especially when you're new, which I was when I was running a campaign, to railroad your characters, right? Mm -hmm. To have a very linear story that they are supposed to progress through and to not be very receptive or agile about them wanting to do other things. And what he's managed to do with this story is create this town and this hour of time within the town where I'm sure he's got some kind of grid of like mm. what's happening where with which characters at what time. And so whatever choices the three characters make, he can tell them what's happening there and they can decide that what they want to like do. So much work to yeah. prepare. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm sure it is. And also he edits the show, right? Mm -hmm. So he does the editing I do here is nothing compared to what happens with that show because they they also always talk about how they're very conscious of wanting to tell an entertaining story and so he takes a lot of the crunchy bits where they're just like rolling dice or looking up spells or whatever out of the show to really have the action go along not all of it because some of it's entertaining but uh how yeah. much do you need to know about or enjoy D D to enjoy the podcast zero i think if you enjoy like fantasy and improv storytelling yeah, yeah if I, you enjoy stories <laughs> i would caution you then if you're not not to start with the first episodes. Oh, they've fixed that problem, though. Have they? Because they've created episode 1.5. Okay. Which cuts out a lot of the, like... Because I, that's... I honestly, I haven't gotten into the Adventure Zone mm. pretty much for that reason. Like, I tried to listen to the first episode. I got about halfway through, and I'm like, oh my god, this is so tedious. This is like playing yeah. with real people, and it makes me want to kill The everybody. original first episode of the oh, Adventure that makes, Zone... That makes me feel so terrible. <laughs> as somebody you play D&D &D with regularly. Maybe I won't go to your house next time. Um, no, that's, it's just like, 
I just like watching. Can you imagine watching us play D anD D like that? That would be bad. I can just ask Anna what that's like. Yeah. That's <laughs> um, the first episode was originally done actually just as like a bonus episode to fill time uh, in the Mid Bam Bam feed when Justin and his wife were having a baby, and then people loved it so much that they were like, "No, you have to keep doing this," and they like managed to you know raise enough money mm-hmm. um, to keep doing it. And since then, they have yeah refined the way the episodes are put together. You could start with like. It's really clear in the feed because of the titles of the episodes, what's part of which arc. Mm-hmm. So you could just pick an arc that sounds interesting. It's just that you won't get all the little character development pieces. They probably have that on their website, though. Like recurring oh, yeah. about them. Yeah. McElroyShows.com. Well, that's another thing stuff. that's amazing about the Adventure Zone is the amount of fan art that has been created and the quality of it and the imaginings of this world that Griffin is just creating from whole cloth is mm-hmm. amazing. About how many episodes are there? Uh, 47. Do they have the same characters throughout? Yes. Yeah. So uh, Travis plays Magnus Burnsides, a human fighter. And Boy. Clint, who's their dad, um, is Merle Highchurch, who's a cleric from the Church of Pan, who likes to <laughs> likes to um, proselytize to people about Pan using his extreme teen Bible. <laughs> and, um, and then Justin is probably the most Taco entertaining, the <laughs> entertaining character who is Taco the Elven Magician. Um, in the very first episode, he doesn't tell Griffin the name of his character. He spells it out and he says, okay, my character's name is T-A-A-K-O. And then there's this great moment where Griffin just goes, did you just name your goddamn wizard Taco? <laughs> <laughs> And there's some actually some recurring bits of like Taco's quest to learn about all the ingredients of tacos because they don't <laughs> exist in this universe. Um, but there's lots of neat little bits. Like, you know how at the beginning of a D&D session when we um, like go shopping for shit with the gold we got last time, they do that at Fantasy Costco, which Griffin has written a jingle for. And they go there and they meet with <laughs> Garfield, the deals warlock. <laughs> Um, and the items at Fantasy Costco are all things that um, listeners have created. Oh, nice. And sent in <laughs> with like what it does and the price and whatever. And Griffin rejects the ones that are just like a gauntlet that controls everyone. But yeah. he, there's some really, really neat stuff. Um, my favorite one to wrap up is probably the Glutton's Fork, which once a day you can tap on an inanimate object that is uh, a non-magical inanimate object small enough for you to reasonably eat and it will turn into food and you can eat it. It's actually come in handy a few times. <laughs> so, yeah, I would say it's just getting better and better all the time and a more and more polished product. Cool. Well, I'll have to – I think I'll just start a few episodes later then. Just jump back in. Have you guys talked about our D&D campaign ever a on lot. your show? Okay. A little, yeah. yeah. Well, and John's been on talking about D&D in okay. general a few yeah. times, yeah. Yeah. His map for the, the oh city my God, his is map. absurd. Yeah. Yeah. Don't get me started. <laughs> It's a nerd alert. It's a class ed. Somebody went to Comic-Con. Tell us all about it. This is like Comic-Con. Like we've talked about Emerald City Comic-Con and it's like pretty awesome. But you went to San Diego. You went to like the Ur Comic-Con. Yep. Um, The big one. You know what? I will say first of all, though, if you just want comics, I think Emerald City is the better one to go to. Oh, because it's got that whole like dirt mall side that's all old comics and toys. Does anybody go to Comic-Cons for comics? anymore i think he does that's what i would go to them for but i literally ran into you with me like by the bins last year or the year before but i don't even mean that i just mean in terms of the number of creators that are actually oh yeah i felt that at san diego um like the artist alleys did not seem as large as as really i could be wrong does it feel like kind of a 
does it feel like a partially a professional conference? Because ECC is starting more and more to feel like that. I think the, the the big thing at San Diego is that it's not a comic convention anymore. It's mm-hmm. like, and they don't even describe it as that. It's like a pop culture media convention right and it's yeah. been kind of rebranded as like sdcc like yeah Northeast's and so like the number of movie stuff and tv stuff yeah all the all the big hall h panels have nothing stuff. to do with comics yeah and and even like you look at the the marvel booth which is this big thing is just about like their netflix shows and doctor strange hmm. there's nothing about comics there or like the like credit cards they're trying to sell you <laughs> um and the dc like dc had seem to have more comic creators there but if you just walk to their booth it was still just like here are the costumes from suicide squad um like here is all this stuff and so the emphasis like if you want comic stuff you can go there and you can find comic stuff and the comic stuff can be amazing Hmm. but the emphasis is not i don't think is the the main focus anymore so when you were when you went to the artist alley did you mostly see larger like creators or did you see a lot of indie creators? So the thing that I think was interesting was that because San Diego was so big, creators that would have their own table at Emerald City uh, yeah. would just be like, I'm just signing at the image booth. Mm. You know? Because you have to be really big and have the money to have an actual table. I, I don't think it's like you don't have to be. You can get it you can get in those areas. But I think there's the cost and the number of people there makes mm. it not worth it to them um so yeah it was like it's interesting to see but i would like i walked around the artist alley and i walked around like the the indie people and there just wasn't as many people whose stuff i was interested in as at other cons i've gone to hmm. well i guess um, that's good to know right it makes you feel better about making it i still most of the time i still think it's worth going to like mm-hmm. if you get the chance um but yeah for for strictly comic stuff i think i've been more excited about some other things but that depends on on what you're going there for you know and, and why you're going and what you want to get out of it and if like some of my favorite creators were at san diego and one of them is a japanese creator who will probably never come to north america ever again oh wow okay and well, so then. like i got to like meet him and go to his panel and get stuff signed by him and so that was like amazing to me <laughs> so that's maybe a good transition to like why and how you got there in the first place okay so i was um (laughs) i helped organize uh the comic conference for educators and librarians that happened as an official part of san diego comic con it happened at uh san diego public library uh which is a few blocks away from the actual convention center in downtown san diego excuse me um so this was um i think four or five days of events um aimed at educators and librarians as the, mm-hmm. the title might have implied and i was invited to contribute to this one day of panels that was going to be by librarians awesome um so a lot of the others were uh by publishers and by creators um basically trying to sell stuff to to mm-hmm. libraries and to educators um and like that that's saying that's making it really seem kind of crass well and that's their job and that's also where we get our stuff mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um but so this one was more about uh we ran five panels in the day they were about running free comic book day in your library, running comic cons in your library, um, comics are literacy too, uh, making comics in the library, and uh, comic book graphic novel collection development in the library. That's awesome. So, so were you five. involved in the development of like multiple ones of those? Yep. Or? So yeah. like I was invited to participate in this discussion about whether we would do something and I took the lead and made sure that things would happen. Um, you were awesome at doing that you were the original impetus for our panel this Mm -hmm. year 
And and the fact that I didn't get to do more at Emerald City is why I took charge in this one hmm. and said, okay, I want to do this. And so I created the schedule. I wrote the panel descriptions. I split up and said who was going to be on which panel. Um, and said, like, you can say you don't want to be on this panel despite having contributed stuff to the discussion already. Mm-hmm. Did all that. Uh, like, I was on two panels specifically. I was on the reader, um, the collection development and the making comics. And so with the, the making comics, I was um, the other person on the panel was Jack Bauer. Uh, B-A-U-R. <laughs> so I was about to say. Not, not, not the same. 24. Um, and so we uh, made the entire um, presentation, like we had this big presentation about all the different methods and things you can use for making comics and libraries, running workshops, having creators in, all that sort of thing. And so we had this presentation all made in advance. And then um, we actually gave it there. It was kind of intimidating and scary to do this because i'd never met any of the other people on any of the panels before that day <laughs> wow. and a lot of them knew each other because most of them were from southern california so this was initially through ala or through one of the ala lists or something um i was invited by uh somebody who works for ala because okay. they know i'm involved in the, in the comics and graphic mm. novel stuff and i'm really into that uh, and so it's like as our listeners will remember from your very first appearance on this show <laughs> yes um, so it was like ALA affiliated, um, but not like branded, I guess. Okay. I, don't, I don't know exactly mm-hmm. how it works, mm-hmm. but like ALA is the reason that this happened because they got everyone together and had them have the conversation. And nobody from San Diego Public Library was actually on any of the panels, which is interesting. So they were provided the space. They were doing a lot of the um, communication with um, Comic-Con. Actually, I'm incorrect. One person was briefly on a panel as a representative okay. for Comic-Con. Um but yeah, like making sure everything was set up and doing all that. And then uh, Comic-Con itself was there and had uh, like the speakers and equipment and microphones and all that stuff as well. Um, so there were a number of different groups involved with this. That's great. Yes. We are all building precedent for librarians and cool <laughs> nerd spaces. It's, it's really exciting that we were invited to do this. That um, One of the things that was really great about it was that you didn't actually have to have a Comic-Con badge to get into this event yay free library programs for everyone you did have to register in advance which we did because we weren't Mm -hmm. sure um apparently maybe san diego comic-con wanted that i'm not sure about the exact details about that but we also wanted to like um, make sure we had enough space for everybody Mm -hmm. and we Mm -hmm. did and so hopefully next year we'll allow people to register on site um which would be great but apparently they, they did this they did something similar last year and it was not not as many people showed up, but this year we had like 150 people show up or something, That's which wonderful. is really great. We've gotten some amazing feedback from people. Um, mm-hmm. Like they sent out a, a survey to ask for feedback, uh, some of which has given us really great ideas for what to do in the future. That things I would um, seem really obvious in hindsight, like having handouts <laughs> with yeah. information Ugh. that we talked about. I'm just like, oh yeah, I guess people would find that valuable. <laughs> Hate handouts. We had a website in lieu of that, mm-hmm. but yeah. Or like, yeah, sure. Yeah. Have a website. Set we up. actually, do... I think, still got a few people saying, "Look, is there a handout?" Though yeah. people like handouts. People do like that stuff, um, and so there was a lot of a lot of things like that that are like the first time you plan and run something, it's going to be like, "What are what are we doing? How are how are we doing this?" That's but it went we really iterate. well. Um, it was really exciting. I met lots of awesome librarians. Um, some I've known from uh, like internet stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'd been in communication with a few of them. Uh, one of the other people on one of the pa- on some of the panels was um, a another editor for No Flying No Tights, which is a graphic novel review site mm. uh, aimed at and 
created by librarians and where I'm also an editor. Uh, others um, are members of like the librarian gamers Facebook groups and stuff like that. So I, I know some of these people and some of them knew who I was as well. But others I didn't know um, before, but I met them and they were amazing, wonderful people who I'm now friends with, which is really oh, exciting. That's so great. <laughs> yes. So which panels were you on? Uh, so I said uh, the uh, collection development panel and Ooh. the making comics panel. Okay. And collection development was just we had um, after the, a couple of the other panels that had happened, there were a lot of questions from the audience. And so that one, we just kind of threw it open for the entire thing and just had people ask us oh, questions. What kinds of questions did you get? Yeah. Uh, some of them were really interesting um, that I wish that we could have provided answers for. And some of them were things that we could provide answers for. So there were some questions about like digital comics and mm -hmm. like in public libraries, we could provide answers to that about like Hoopla and other services that are available for having not Hoopla, but yeah, <laughs> for having digital comics in yeah. libraries. Yeah. Um, and others were like, oh, I want to have digital comics in academic libraries. And we're like, Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, have you heard of web comics? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I honestly, I can't even remember a lot of the things we discussed now. It's it's It was like over a month ago at this point. Well, yeah. And also like it must have been a little bit overwhelming <laughs> to be up there. Um, there were a lot of questions about like things for um, like elementary school kids mm -hmm. and just asking for specific titles and resources that, that people could be pointed at. And so we we're able to say, look at, um, there are lists put out by ALA groups every year, but that are aimed at different reading levels in like elementary and primary school hmm. um the yalsa best books for teens it was interesting to see the audience was very had a lot of um educators and like school librarians and those sort of people which is an area i'm very unfamiliar with but thankfully other people on the panels yeah. had a lot more familiarity with that and were able to answer their questions because well, i feel like that's where people's minds go when they don't know a lot about the world of comics and graphic novels is they assume that it's a thing for kids right like what I'm curious about is somebody who's programming is, for adults is, did that come up at all? I think this is kind of the opposite oh, really? in that it's teachers saying, I'm trying to find appropriate things for my oh, students. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And I can't. In like a school yeah, context. Yeah, in a school yeah, context. Yeah. And so it was very different. And seeing that like a lot of comics are for adults, I need things that are specifically for children. So that's almost made a reversal. Yeah, it's really it, interesting. it really has. Huh. Um, so yeah, it was interesting. There were, yeah, it was. And so that was the the kind of audience that was there hmm. this year but next year could be different next year so. lots more library people yes this will get out there. <laughs> um so yeah it was a lot of fun i can um uh my the the slideshow for the making comics oh, be great. is available online yeah. it'll be in the show notes uh did so. you do anything like Obviously, 150 people, you can't really do it interactively. But did you, like, make comics in front of them? Or was it just like a... We didn't do anything like methods? that. We just yeah. really talked about the, the different, like, experiences we've had, different um, things that different libraries have done and that hmm. sort of thing. Um, what is your favorite idea for bringing the making of comics into libraries? Just one? Like, what is a program you would like to see run? Say at BPL. All of them. <laughs> um, so tell us about one. So ones that I've personally run mm. in library spaces are uh, comic jams, and so this is where uh, you have one person draws one panel, and then somebody else draws the next panel, and the next person draws the next panel, and so forth. Comic and telephone. it's yeah, it's kind of encouraging the creation of right there. It's a cute a group project, so it yeah. encourages that. I think also having those things is you can encourage people to 
that don't think they have artistic skills to really do stuff mm. because you can have people like write in dialogue and things or even just you're drawing one panel you can probably yeah, draw you can one draw panel a tree. you can draw <laughs> yeah. like or you can draw, draw stick figures like whatever you mm. want i think so much of running making comics things and why i think it's really important is to encourage creativity in people and that's one of the reasons that i love zines and the internet <laughs> yeah. is allowing people and giving people platforms to make things and encouraging their creativity um, for people of all ages because I think a lot of people think that they, they can't be a creator or that they can't produce things and I think that's untrue. I think everybody can make things. I cannot agree more. Um, so another one that I'd love to to see more libraries do is something called a 24-hour comic. Mm-hmm. And 24-hour comics are when you take 24 hours and you have to draw a like basically a 24-page comic. So it's like that a comic hackathon. It's a huge commitment. It is. Uh, mm-hmm. But like... Neil Gaiman has done one. Yeah, so, like, uh, he's not even Pete no- Beaton does them every year usually. Yeah, a lot of uh, do so, them. so there's a difference between 24 hour comics and, and hourly comics. Oh, okay. So these are two different things. Oh. 24 hour comics is like you're making a comic book, a 24 page hmm. story from beginning to end. Yeah, so. And you're staying awake for 24 hours to make this thing. And I've run 24 um, hour zine making events where you're, you're hmm. staying awake and you're doing that. And they can be really great for just being like, oh, that idea I've had for a while. Let's just get it done. And like. It. So they, they can be really fun. And, you know, they're not they're always kind of funny to see, like, the very later pages because people start doing a lot of, like, really detailed work. And then by the end, they're just, like, a <laughs> lot, lot less detailed than the art they're producing, which is kind of funny sometimes. They're, like, the work they're doing. Reading. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So hourly comics are a different thing that I think right. that libraries can also do. And this is where every hour you draw a comic. Like a, a like usually just like a couple of panels or one panel, and it's just about like what you did during that day or however you can do um, you can create a narrative as well in the studio. Like I'm going to draw one panel every hour to produce a comic at the end of the day, and so that's that's what Kate Beaton does, yeah, and that's what other creators do, and that's another great thing that I think libraries can do, yeah, um, is do that. To go back to the 24 hour comics, you'd be like my say well libraries aren't open 24 hours <laughs> could be for but a single event and like you know you like high schoolers do things like lock-ins like you yeah, can do or a like VPL the 30 hour famine or whatever yeah. right yeah. but even without that there are um variations that you can do so yeah. you can do like a 12 hour comics day mm-hmm. and do that and you or you can split it over two days and be like it's 12 hours this day it's 12 hours the next day if you want to do a 24 hour one. no let's keep it as 24 hours because it's a thing that i that i've asked about a bit at our library and i'm hoping now that i have a permanent programming job i can make it happen it's like yeah doing things outside of library mm-hmm. hours to you i think know, it's for really promotion exciting. and for creativity purposes we have the inspiration lab now mm-hmm. why not do like a karaoke night in yep. there or a 24-hour Have, comic did stand. you hear about that library that now has a karaoke room yes yeah that was awesome yeah. they also in um i just went to a presentation this morning mm-hmm. for like totally real but just for a second um, by one of the directors of the state library of victoria in australia yep. and she was talking about how in melbourne every year they do white night uh, like the sort of Parisian tradition yep. of having this like carnival for one night and whatever. And they they have this big, beautiful building that's actually 23 buildings that have grown up over the last 150 years. And they project things on the outside. And then on the inside, she showed us a picture of one of their beautiful, big circular reading mm-hmm. rooms. And they had like a DJ in the middle and like art projected all over the walls. Mm-hmm. And it just sounds amazing. I want to do more things like that. So I think it's it's great to do those programs. It's so exciting to do them. But... I wanted to make sure that people knew that if they don't have those resources, that's true. They can still do these. That's programs. a really and good they point. Can do, 
we can you can do a 12 hour thing if you're only open that and you don't have the resources you don't have the staff to stay open all night because and you don't need digital equipment either because comics no you can just like paper and some pencils is all you need i did also talk about the technology and digital stuff that you can use (laughs) because i think that's also really exciting and having um maker spaces and libraries they're not just about technology things they're also about being creative in regards to arts, mm. other forms of arts. And so there are libraries that have um, like Wacom t- tablets available for yeah. drawing. There are com- there are libraries that have um, like specific programs like Manga Studio that you can, that are made for producing comics in, that they, that they have those available. There's not, not many have them yet, but I think that it's going to be an area that's going to grow as more and more have things like Photoshop and other tools yeah, like that absolutely. available to use. Because having those tools available to you making technology available to wider audience is what i really view libraries as being really great at yeah and so you're 14 years old and you want to make comics but you can't you don't have a wacom tablet at home and you don't have manga studio at home but if you can go to the library and, and use those tools to make your comics then that i think is really important and learn how to use those mm-hmm. tools i mean i think the thing we have to be mindful of is is we have to keep iterating we have to get better at getting mm-hmm. faster and being more innovative because these programs are going to change in two years right yep. we're going to need to keep making sure we have the ones people need for whatever it's worth when i was 14 i made a comic in ms paint <laughs> i, I made, use the oh. tools we have i yeah. made comics in uh in powerpoint <laughs> with clip art <laughs> so yeah you use the tools that you have and people have produced amazing stuff using weird um like weird tools and stuff and mm-hmm. i think that's one of the other exciting things about making digital tools available um, through libraries and other things is that people will use the tools that you make available to them in ways that you would never expect it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is so exciting to me is that like you can think about as many different things as you, as you can, but other people will find new ways to use them and being able to, to see how they're being used and react to that and like grow those areas is something that I think libraries could be better at. Yes. And... Um, but I think there are people out there that are doing that right now. And I think that's, that's really great. Um, I think so, yeah. if libraries wanted to do events around making comics, um, doing it during national novel writing month would be a good time. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In fact, have you ever looked to see whether anybody has done anything comic oriented for national novel writing month? I know that there's, um, there's 24 hour comics Graphic day novel. and there's hourly comics day. So there's specifically those, uh, I, I'm sure that there are people that have used national novel writing month. Uh, it might be a way to sneak it into public libraries because we're that is true. better at like more literary sounding things. Like we do have mm-hmm. NaNoWriMo programming at EPL. Um, but there are people that have used those, used that month to make comics as well. Mm-hmm. And so you can, you can use whatever, use whatever tools you have available. If you want to have making comics programs, you, you can do that. Uh, so it's exciting. Uh, do you guys have any other questions about library specific stuff or should I go on i mean this is all really really exciting but i think i'd like to know what else you saw like besides the awesome stuff that you did was there any were there any other (laughs) really good panels that you went to or either library related or just like awesome stuff Mm -hmm. so i went to um there were three major panels that i went to uh two of them were by some of my favorite creators uh, one of them was uh, Mike Mignola, who creates mm-hmm. Hellboy. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I love Hellboy. Very exciting. And by um, that, I mean I love the movies because I'm a show. But <laughs> I love the movies. <laughs> the comics are, are some of my favorite comics. And he is a truly phenomenal artist. And so listening to him um, just talk about 
making Hellboy and stuff was really oh. fun for me. Uh, and yeah, it wasn't like there was no like amazing news broken or whatever. Like, and I don't care. Like, yeah. I literally I don't care. That's what the internet is for. In yeah, it's it's so funny to me that people line up for hours to get into a theater to watch a trailer that will be on the internet tomorrow. Yeah. You know, but whatever. People have different interests. Mm -hmm. That's not an area I'm interested in. So I got to um, listen to him speak. Uh, I met him a little bit. He signed. Uh, I, I bought the final Hellboy graphic novel that he's working on because the Hellboy story is now finished. Mm -hmm. There's going to be like, like backstories and, and stuff set in the past and spinoffs but the actual Hellboy stuff that Mike Mignola will draw is finished mm. and he's going he's working on something new now which Ooh, I'm very excited about cool uh so I picked up the final volume of Hellboy in Hell uh and I later discovered it was a Comic-Con exclusive which oh, was wow. like what <laughs> uh and I only I, I read it the other day and I was really excited to, to see that it's this big nice oversized hardcover and I'm just like oh this makes buying it really worthwhile <laughs> yeah <laughs> because okay. apparently there's no other way to place to get it so I'm like awesome <laughs> great Did I hope you weren't kicking yourself in? I didn't get a sketch, unfortunately, oh. no. Um, it's, yeah. But, you know, he, he signed it at least. Mm -hmm. cool. uh, the other creator who I saw was uh, Tsutomo Nihei, uh, who is a Jap the Japanese creator I mentioned. Um, he was, I think he came over partially because um, his, his an anime based on uh, one of his manga called Knights of Cydonia is on Netflix, and it's like a Netflix oh, anime yeah. show. Oh, yeah, And so this was... There was the launch of the trailer for his new show that's coming out next mm. year called Blame, or apparently in J Japanese, Blam, because they don't know how to spell <laughs> things. Um, and uh, uh, can we pause for a moment? Because oh, yeah. Anna just texted yeah. me. So, Go for it. So they showed the trailer for the new Blame series, uh, and half the people in the audience were very excited and i'm like i don't care uh, <laughs> and and it was it was funny like you like they his had, stuff i love i love his comics i love his artwork um but so many of the people in the audience were there for the anime and i had no idea Knights of Sadioni existed as an anime um, and it was interesting to see like so many of the questions from the audience there was a q a section um because like the directors of the anime were, and some of the, the producers were also there but basically all of the questions were about the anime mm -hmm. and i'm like mm -hmm whatever and then i i managed to ask the final question which was what's your next comic series because <laughs> i'm like tell me about the comics it's like everyone else was yelling free bird and you were asking for that deep cut he loves to play yeah well like it's like he it was everyone was asking about the dvd box set and he was like well you could ask me about actually playing music I guess. yeah um so yeah he, he talked about what comic he didn't really give many details, but he said he's he's working on something new and said it's very different from what he's done in the past, which was kind of neat. And they gave me a free T-shirt, which was like, yeah. That's awesome. um, <laughs> and then there was a signing and he like sketched and stuff and signed things. So that was really exciting, too, because it's like like a, he's a Japanese creator. He's probably never going to come over to North America. Again. Like Jap there's usually like one Japanese creator at, at Comic-Con a year, like a big one so, or like some of the other events have them as well, but it's not very many of them actually get over here. It sounds like the stars aligned for you. It like was, there was library stuff going on that you could contribute to, but also mm -hmm. like these cool things that yep. you would really want to do that are only happening there. Mm -hmm. We're happening. That's so great. Uh, and so, the final panel I went to, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Was the best and worst manga panel. Um, oh. And so that was also really great to, and kind of reignited my love of manga. What's <laughs> the worst um, manga of the year? I, I can't remember. What's a bad one that stood out? <laughs> I, I, like honestly they mostly just talked about the good stuff oh, okay um, good. That's and, nice and the bad stuffs are just like these like 
poorly drawn sexploitation manga most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what else yeah. is new? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, and I got to see some of my friends um, that are involved with the comic industry in various ways, so that was kind of nice. Um, so I met some, I saw some of them again, got to talk to them. I met lots of new people and got to talk to them, um, like creators and people that work for companies and various things. And that's really exciting to me as well. Just like to see, to be surrounded by people that love comics is really exciting to me uh, because I guess sometimes I can forget that that exists. (laughs) (laughs) So Matthew, how does one approach a comic idol? Ooh, that's a good question because I am total crap at approaching anybody. So it depends on the podcasters. It depends on the environment, and some of them I'm way more comfortable than others. And so, like when they're sitting behind a table (laughs) signing stuff, that's kind of awkward. Mm -hmm. When you're at an after party and they're just there talking to people, it's easier to talk to them. Um, Interesting. And so. Yeah, I got to talk to Verena Telgemeier of Smile and, like, the Babysitter Club's adaptations <laughs> uh, at an after party. And she was just really nice and friendly. And we just talked about comics and stuff. That's lovely. And because she knows lots of library people. And so that's how I met her. And, yeah. <laughs> so it depends on the scenario and, like, the Being context. a librarian in these contexts is becoming a thing that you can drop. And people are like, oh, I want to talk to you. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> A lot of the creators love librarians. You know, I've because... never had anyone want to talk to me because I'm a librarian. <laughs> the only reason I want to talk to you. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. I had someone ask me if I was famous because of my speaker badge at ECC. <laughs> nice. And you said, yes. I have a podcast. You haven't heard of it? Yeah, really. <laughs> Actually, I was carrying a suitcase that had a NASA tag on it, so mm-hmm. I realized afterwards I should have been like... <laughs> there's like nasa librarians though so like there actually yeah. are those people um so yeah it was it was a really exciting experience um just meeting just to be to be honest just meeting all the librarians would have made it worth worthwhile for me to go down there and see these other librarians that are mm-hmm. like working in different library systems and running amazing programming and just doing really exciting stuff and just caring about comics so much and libraries so much it was great are you gonna go back next year i'm really hoping that i will um, I plan to, I will, it will be better next year <laughs> because of the, all the things that I learned. Do but you you're also might... going to be on our panel next year, right? Uh, at Emerald City? <laughs> uh, sure. I think, I think the plan right now is to have more than one panel at Emerald City. We're going to have a, a number of things there. We're going to have a larger library presence. Oh, that's wonderful. So that's, that's exciting. As well. Do you think that next year you might do roughly the same programming at uh, San Diego Comic-Con? No, I think we'd do different programming. Um, I think there's there's always going to be some desire for the same things being done every year because not everyone's going to be able to attend it. But there's different things that people are going to want to do. And seeing the feedback from this year, and we we put together this year's schedule with not that much time. Mm-hmm. And so having more time to prepare would allow us to do a greater variety of things. And then there's the, the cataloging panel and the cataloging conundrum of mm-hmm. how like, terrible want to know about it, but how do you make it interesting? Is, at cataloging graphic novels yeah um basically catalogers are really bad at cataloging graphic novels <laughs> mm-hmm. the systems aren't built for it no they're gotta, not gotta break out it's it's i could rant about this for hours <laughs> and this is kind of the reason we didn't actually do this because everyone was like i have things to say about cataloging yeah. graphic novels <laughs> like, that's the after party I, I after party with copious no, booze and the theme is cataloging graphic novels i think there's, yeah. we can definitely i want to do sessions about that and i think they will just 
involve a bit more planning hmm. so that it's not just people ranting for an hour, <laughs> but it's actually um, something helpful, like yeah. things that are helpful and like how to do this better as opposed to you were doing it wrong. Because like I, I kind of wanted to say you're doing it wrong for hours, <laughs> but, but that is not going to help anybody do it better. Yeah. Would you consider recording some of the sessions and then making them available to people? So they were recorded okay. by oh, San Diego Comic-Con. Okay. We don't know what's happening with that. Um, I need to reach out again and find out because, um, yeah, we want we want these things to be available to a well, wider audience. Keep us posted because we're so, giving everybody a taste here, but it'd be great to yeah. be able to share that. Uh, I think they're they're really great, and I'm I hope that they will soon be available to everybody on the internet. Well, congratulations! Yeah, uh, first of That's all, a big it's, achievement. It's an enormous achievement, a great feat, and yeah, doing some really awesome work. Um, for the library community. So mm-hmm. congratulations. That's a really, really cool thing you got to do. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and thank you for sharing it with us, especially like now that you're sort of racking your brains because it's been a month, but we got it done. And good guest hosting, Melanie. <laughs> good <Thank> question. <laughs> <laughs> what a cool, fun bunch of people we are. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's so great that more and more it's becoming the norm to be like, I love this awesome thing. Mm-hmm. What's a way to use it in my teaching, in my professional practice? What's a way to get other people excited about it, to encourage other people to work in this form, to appreciate this form? I like that we're doing that more and more with things that are not just books. Yeah. Books are lame. <laughs> books are great, but they're not the Screw only great books. thing out there. Whatever. <laughs> Well, I guess in the out in the Twitterverse, we've uh, been gathering a whole bunch of followers. A couple people, um, a lot of people tweeted at us about uh, Christina Nigel's episode. Yes, um, which was incredible. So cool to hear from her. Uh, hopefully, we'll be able to talk to her again when her project is even further along down the line. That was such a wonderful conversation, and I'm so glad we got to share that. Yeah. And I've had a lot of people, yeah, talk to me in person as well. Jonathan, of course, um, about other places we can take that conversation and ways that it helped them think a little differently about the profession. Sure. Um, One of the things I always hear from Jonathan, which I feel very like validated in the work we do here about is that he (laughs) really enjoys the way we make him think about his work in a different way because as a male librarian, his experience is very different. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, We also had a really sweet tweet from, uh, from SL McDonald at Bra Bukes on Twitter saying a tricky week at work this week, feeling both deflated by stress and inspired by listening to podcasts from SS librarianship so (laughs) I'm glad we can bring a little little laughter and interest into people's lives that's really nice yeah totally Uh, anything else going on Um, well as always if you want to listen to old episodes of the show if you've just come on board or if you're just looking to go back through all the interesting conversations we've had with Matthew and Melanie and lots and lots of other folks Mm -hmm. uh, you can find all that at Mm sslibrarianship.com you can also order a button or throw us a few shekels to help out with hosting fees and new mics and etc and I guess we should thank Jonathan Colton for the use of our theme song glasses off the album Artificial Heart. Mm -hmm. We're still stealing in our resolve to not go this year. Yeah, despite there's going to be some McElroy's there. Yeah. (laughs) Bummer. (laughs) Oh, well. That's okay. We've met our podcast heroes. We'll meet them again. (laughs) We don't need to go on the cruise. But um, we're really happy for everybody who is going this year because they are going to be in for a treat if they get a live episode of Sawbones. Oh, for sure. And uh, yeah, we always love getting feedback too, guys. So if 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 our show makes you think of something or you have an idea, something you'd like us to cover... 
just let us know. We're happy to do some research. Or if you want to be on the show, uh, we can do distance interviews. So mm, absolutely, it'd be great. And I guess uh, without, if that's all there is, there isn't any more. We'll just have to catch you guys on the proverbial flip side. about the zoo that only has one animal no apparently it's a shih tzu <laughs> like um why couldn't uh buddha compete in his boxing match or why? like why did buddha fail the weigh in at his boxing match why did buddha fail the weight limit in his boxing match because he had become enlightened <laughs> <laughs> i like it uh, so yeah, it's it's terrible, but I was actually like kind of proud of that one. I'm just like, no, this is like an actual joke that I have come up with. 